All right. Good morning, everyone. So good to be with you today. I know we've got a bunch of people watching online, too. And so welcome to all of you. My name is Paul Mumaw. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis. And uh, it is great to be able to worship with you today. It's Super Bowl Sunday, right? Everybody knows that. Today's the day, the big games tonight. How many of you, by show of hands, are rooting for the Rams this evening? All right. Who, who's rooting for the Rams? All right. We've got a few Rams fans in the house. All right. How many of you are rooting for the Bengals uh, tonight? Who's rooting for the Bengals. If it can't be the Colts, right, we'll root for the Bengals. How many of you, maybe by a show of hands, really don't care who wins? In fact, you just hope everybody has a really good time this evening, right? You know, everybody just enjoys the memories that they're making on the field in LA. You all know the Super Bowl's a really, really big deal, especially if you're a diehard football fan and your team's uh, in it. I saw a survey this past week uh, that was conducted by an online finance uh, group called Nerd Wallet. Maybe you've heard of them before, seen their commercial. They asked fans, diehard fans, what would you do? What length would you go to? All right, what would you give up in order for your team to go to the Super Bowl and win it? 52% of people said they would give up a year's worth of vacation time, all right, to see their team win the Super Bowl. That's how big of a deal it is to them. 31% said they would forfeit their annual bonus, all right, all for the big game, all for the big win. 14% said they would turn over their savings account. Again, just to have that moment, have that experience of watching the game tonight, your team walks away a winner. But as big of a deal as the game is for those of us who watch it, it's an even bigger deal for City that hosts the Super Bowl, right? And we all kind of know that a little bit. If you've been around Indy for a while, you know that 10 years ago, Indianapolis hosted the Super Bowl. And uh, if you were here then, you remember it was a really, really big deal. There were preparations that went on for years, years in advance to make the Super Bowl a reality. Of course, it started with the building of Lucas Oil Stadium. Uh, once Indy was announced as the host city, people got to work building large scale areas like the Georgia Street kind of renovation, all the outdoor party space. Uh, thousands of volunteers were recruited and trained. Restaurants and hotels added capacity, all right, to host the thousands of visitors that descended upon the city for one week, and then they all went back home, all right? But we all remember that. I mean, it, again, it, it had so many benefits, you know, to the city of Indianapolis, and we still enjoy some of those today. Go back in time with me, if you would, all right? I want you to make a trip with me today, 2,000 years ago, to first century Israel, and Passover, one of the three major holidays celebrated by the Jewish people each year, is about to happen. And dating back even 2,000 years before that, uh, before Jesus, Passover commemorates the day that God uh, rescued his people, saved them, and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And, and Jerusalem, at the time of Jesus, uh, scholars believe was uh, home to about 200,000 people, give or take. Uh, again, a pretty good-sized city for the ancient world. But when Passover came around, every Jewish male who lived within 15 miles of the city of Jerusalem was required to travel to the city according to the Jewish law. But they're not the only ones that could come uh, or would come. During that holy week, uh, it's estimated that the city's population would soar from its normal 200,000 to sometimes as much as 2.25 million people descending upon Jerusalem again for this Passover event. Most of them were there to celebrate with their family and friends, as well as to offer their personal sacrifices at the temple. So hang on to that image, if you would, all right? Lots of crowds, kind of a celebratory environment, everyone coming into the city, 
and open your Bible to John chapter 2. All right, if you've got a Bible with you today, we've got some in the back of the room if you want to grab one of those. Uh, we'll also put the words here on the screen. But as you're turning there, uh, we're in the series called Grow, where we're reading and studying through the book of John together this year. Uh, the book of John's giving us an in-depth look at the life of Jesus. Last week, our campus pastor, Jerry, who was on stage just a moment ago, took us to a wedding in Cana where Jesus uh, turned water into wine and as a result brought back the joy uh, into a celebration that was about to fall apart. Now, this was the first occasion, this wedding at Cana, the water to wine event, the first occasion, the first miracle that John records for us in his gospel. But we'll see indications even as we read today and in the days to come that Jesus has started performing uh, these miracles and these healings, especially in and around the city of Jerusalem at this Passover event. But what's about to happen uh, before that high holy day, I want to talk about for just a few minutes. I want to pick it up in John 2, uh, starting in verse uh, 12, actually. John 2, starting in verse 12, here's what John records for us. After this, meaning after the wedding at Cana, Jesus uh, and his disciples went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. All right, now let me show you a map just to kind of give you an idea of what's going on here. Last week, uh, we were in the city of Cana. It doesn't show on this map because we don't know exactly where it is for sure. Many scholars believe that it's here north of Sepphoris, about nine miles north of the city or the village of Nazareth, where Jesus is going to grow up. As we read just a moment ago, Jesus and his disciples are going to make a journey to the city of Capernaum, which is kind of going to become ground zero home base for Jesus and his ministry. But as we read, Jesus and his family, his disciples are going to make this journey to Jerusalem. And the way that you did that in ancient days was you came around the Sea of Galilee, you traveled down the Jordan River Valley. When you got to Jericho, make a right turn and find your way to the city of Jerusalem. Now, let me tell you why that's important, because that's about an 80 to 90 mile journey. Well, why is that significant? Well, because it was more than 15 miles from Jerusalem. It just means that Jesus wasn't required, according to Jewish law, to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Why did he go? It was important to him. I mean, it was a a significant event for for any Jewish person. And uh, you could say it was a habit instilled in him early by his family. In fact, this is the second time the Gospels note that Jesus is in Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, The first time that we read of this is in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was 12 years old. Here's what Luke records about that in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. It says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover when he was 12 years old years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Yesterday, uh, I had the chance to spend time with uh, uh, a friend of ours. My, my, well, my buddy Craig, he's got a son, uh, Ben, who's turning 13 this year. And so one of the things that Craig does for his boys is he chooses uh, eight or nine men that have played a significant role in their family's lives. And, and he asks us men uh, to take his son for and, and just have an experience, have an adventure together, and then maybe share a little bit about what you've kind of learned from life with him. 
And so Ben and I got to hang out yesterday, went to climb time and uh, spent a little time there climbing around on the walls. And then we went and got some hot chocolate, got some coffee. We sat down together and, and well, I had a chance to share with them a little bit of what I've learned in life. And I, I got to think, what, what do I want to share? And, and the Lord led me to think about just the most important relationships in my life and how important it is to get those important relationships right. And so I talked about my relationship with the Lord first and foremost as the most important relationship I have. I talked about my relationship with my wife and, and how I love her. She's my best friend. I have every intention of spending the rest of my life with her here on this earth and honoring her and serving her. I talked about my family, my kids, and how much they mean to me. And so that was the third. The fourth relationship I wanted to talk to him about was my relationship with my church family. And I just said to him, Ben, I said, church family is family. It's, it's family. You, you need a church family. And, and he's a part of a church right now. But I said, Ben, one day you're going to have to make a decision for yourself to be a part of a church family. Ben, I want to encourage you to choose a church family and then spend the rest of your life with them. All right, through all of the ups and downs, no matter what you go through, because there is nothing like having a church family. Parents, I want to encourage you today, and this is really encouragement for all of us, but especially parents, I, I want to en encourage you to make worshiping with your church family a priority. And I know we love our sports. I know we love our music and our travel and other activities. And because we run like crazy all week long, Sunday sometimes just ends up being that day where we got to slow down and we got to get a break or we rush off to one more thing. Personally, I believe that one of the greatest contributions that you can make to your child's development, uh, more importantly, to your child's spiritual development, as well as the health of your family, is to worship together as a church family, with your family, every single week. This is how my parents raised me. This is uh, how Jenny and I, my wife and I, are trying to raise our kids. Uh, I, I want to encourage you, let's be a church family, all right, that worships together, everyone of all ages. Ages, worshiping Jesus together each week. That's what Jesus' parents were doing for him, and certainly with this Passover event. And he's going to continue with this habit, even as he is getting older. In John 2, he's on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Look at what happens when he gets there. Verse 14, John writes this, in the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so Jesus is at the temple. He enters into this temple complex. And I want to kind of try and set a stage for you as best as I can so that maybe we can understand really what's going on here. And to do that, uh, I'm going to create, I guess if you would, an imperfect analogy. So hang with me. Um, I want you to imagine for just a moment that this building that we're in today, all right, is the temple. Temple. And within the temple uh, is a holy place. And so what we're going to do is we're going to let the lobby uh, serve as our holy place today. And at least in the temple uh, illustration, only the priests would be allowed to enter into the holy place. And this is where the sacrifices would be made. Well, on the other side of the holy place was the holy of holies. And we're going to let this room uh, kind of serve as our holy of holies. And Michael talked about this a couple of weeks ago when he was sharing with us, but only the high priest was allowed to come into the Holy of Holies within the temple. But outside of the temple were the temple courts, okay? And uh, just about everyone was allowed in the temple courts. And so we're going to let the parking lot here today uh, serve as our image of these temple courts. Now imagine it's the law that you are to come here for Super Bowl Sunday every single year. It's just part of the Christian law. And you've got to bring a gift 
gift with you when you come, and that gift is to be a live animal that is going to be made available for sacrifice. Now, I don't know where you live or where you came from today, but most of you probably drove here. And, uh, and, if, you, and if you didn't want to bring a live animal, which I'm guessing you wouldn't want to anyways, that's understandable. Let's be real. It probably took you only about 15 minutes or so uh, to get to our building this morning, wherever you came from. And so wouldn't it be more convenient, all right, if you're walking, I mean, Jesus and his disciples are going to make a one, two, three, four-day walk from Capernaum to Jerusalem. If you're a person like that, it'd be just a lot more convenient to purchase an animal, to purchase a sacrifice when you finally got to the temple. Here's the issue. When you get there, you discover that the animals are going for twice the market rate. And so it's kind of like paying for $7 per gallon for gas at the airport or paying $8, you know, for popcorn at the movies, all right? You're, you're just, you're paying a convenience fee when you are there. That's what's happening in the temple courts. These vendors are making a huge profit off of the guests. But imagine now that when you get there to buy your animal, you find out that they don't take dollars. Uh, they only take euros, all right? And you don't have any of those, but thankfully there's an exchange area. And so you can go over there and you can exchange your money so that you can buy your animal for the sacrifice. Here's the problem. They're charging double for you to exchange your money. I think you get the picture of what's happening. This is what's going on in the temple courts. When Jesus arrives, the religious people are taking advantage, all right, of the people that are coming, especially the poor who could barely afford to make this sacrifice in the first place. And on top of it, they're doing it at the temple. And I don't think we can really understand the importance of the temple and what it meant to the Jews and to Jesus. Here's a picture, a, a model that you can see if you go to Israel. This is the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And this is a model that's built outside that you can walk around and look at what the ancient city was like. Do you notice the buildings around the temple? Do you see how magnificent and how massive the temple really was. It was the center of pride. It was the center of faith. Like you went to the, the temple to worship, to offer sacrifices for sin. Most importantly, the temple represented the earthly house of the Lord. And so you went to the temple to be close to God. Not, not surprisingly, the temple was supposed to be a sacred place. And Jesus knew that. And what happens next? Let's just say that what happens next might really challenge your view or your understanding of Jesus. Look what happens in John 2, verse 15. John writes, So Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. We think of Jesus as a gentle lamb, don't we? And what do you think of when you think of a little lamb? You think of a cuddly, meek, soft, you know, uh, harmless animal. How can we reconcile that image and the picture that we see of Jesus here, cracking a whip, vendors running for their safety, tables turning over as money scatters across the floor. I don't know about you, but this isn't the kind of Jesus I prayed with my kids, you know, growing up with. And as they were growing or at the dinner table, when we think about Jesus as the Lamb of God, we ascribe that kind of behavior to him. But as we see here, sometimes the lamb turns into the lion which leads to an interesting observation. 
And that is that many of us make the mistake of contrasting the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Have you ever done that before? I've done that before. And and we've all wondered or we've thought to ourselves, you know, I like the God of the New Testament a lot better than I like the God of the Old Testament. Or I like the God of love better than the God of, of wrath. Can I tell you something? It's the same God. In fact, the scriptures say that our God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if Jesus is indeed the image of the invisible God, as Colossians chapter 1 explains, then we've got to expect the wrath of God and the love of God to be fully contained in him. I I like how Bible commentator Kent Hughes frames this. He, He says this about Jesus, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is a concept that has been so overworked that many today preach and follow a Christ who has no resemblance to the Christ of the New Testament. And John 2 is a perfect example as we see, let's call it this righteous anger in Jesus. But where's it coming from? Uh, Where's that righteous anger coming from? Well, uh, I I know a lot of angry Christians that uh, would love to grab this example and kind of make it their life verse. But again, what's what's Jesus angry about? Well, for starters, Jesus was disappointed. Uh, He was disappointed in these religious leaders and how they were extorting money for the poor. And that means the temple leadership really was behind it all. This was a a system that was making money off of of the poor people, extorting money from them. And so that's, that's one thing that upset Jesus. Another thing, something else that troubled him was, let's call it a low view of God, all right, a low view of God, that the the people participating in this corruption were ignoring the significance, really, uh, of the temple, the, the house of the Lord here. And so what does Jesus yell at them? He says, stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, we'll soon find out that Jesus wasn't so much upset by the business that was taking place at the temple. No, it's the corruption and really how it misrepresented his father. See, a low view of the temple meant a low view of God, and that caused a righteous anger to well up in Jesus. In fact, look at the next verse, verse 17. John writes that his disciples, so they're watching all of this because remember, they're, they're traveling around with Jesus. Now it says his disciples, remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a moment. You went to a wedding, you had a great time, all right? You spent some time on the lake in Capernaum with Jesus. You've made this trip. He's teaching. You're getting to know each other. It's going really well. You walk into the temple in Jerusalem for the first time with him. He's threatening people, destroying their property, flipping over tables. Wouldn't you be thinking, we might have made a huge mistake? Like, who is this guy? Do we have him wrong? But then your mind flashes back to Psalm chapter 69 and the words, zeal for your house consumes me. It's a passage from the Old Testament period that looks ahead to the Savior of the world, the one who would come and the type of savior he would be. And so Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here. Uh, He saw a group of largely religious people who had this low view of God and his zeal, his enthusiasm pushed him to act. But there's a third thing that I think caused this anger to well up in Jesus too. And let's just call this a, a tolerance or a low view of personal sin. And here's what I mean by that. In in the days leading up to Passover, Deuteronomy chapter 16 commands every Jewish family to go throughout their homes and to get rid of all of the yeast as yeast represented sin. It was symbolic of sin. And so families would spend hours and days cleaning every speck of 
of yeast from their households. It was a tiring, painstaking sort of task. And that's what the people had been doing leading up to the days of Passover. But while all of these Jewish homes were becoming very clean, Jesus walks into his father's house. And how unclean and different it was in a substantial way. Now, I don't think that these religious leaders, who were the Sadducees who ran the temple, woke up one morning and thought to themselves, hey, let's get really rich off of the poor people. But no, like sin tends to do, I think it probably crept in little by little over time. And as years passed, it just became more and more accepted by the culture and society. And so by the time that Jesus shows up, it's just a regular part of the temple in this Passover event. But isn't it true that just because something is widely accepted by society doesn't mean that it's acceptable to our God? And in this case, this tolerance for sin had crept in over the years and just became a normal part of the landscape. But in God's eyes, he's not getting used to it, not at all. And that's why this tolerance for sin threw Jesus into a rage. Make no mistake, his anger, Jesus' righteous anger, should not be confused for sin. Jesus did not sin on this occasion. This isn't the one time that he forgot and, and, and forgot to be godlike. In fact, I heard someone say that Jesus was as godlike in the temple as he was when he hung on the cross. And so what do we make of all of this? Well, you could say that Jesus was demonstrating, I guess, this perfect balance between love and, and righteous anger and anytime really that you think about God, you, or as you think about Jesus, like there's the potential for both this righteous anger and this love and this grace of God. And, and without righteous anger, when you think about it, there can't be love. There can't be grace. There can't be mercy because otherwise, what is he saving us from? And so what is this anger, this righteous anger for Jesus? What's it mean for us today? What do we do with something like this? Well, to answer that, we need to think about what Jesus was doing here and try to put it into context in our own terms. And so how do you do that? Well, let me begin by asking this. What's, what's the temple for Christians today? To which we might be quick to think, well, it's this church building, right? I mean, it's any church building. Or if it's not this one, it's the really big, beautiful one down the street or something. And yes, we do need to be careful about what we do in here. We have to be good stewards of the resources, the facilities that have been given to us. We need to be cautious about what we draw attention to, what we support, what we worship as the people of God. But can I tell you something? This building is not the temple of God. It has not replaced the temple that we see here in Jesus' day. But interestingly, Jesus said this about the temple a few verses later. Pick it up in, in verse 19. It says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. See, Jesus was making an important uh, point about his own life, his death and eventually his resurrection and what all of that was going to mean for our relationship with God. Basically, that one day we're not going to need a temple to worship God anymore, that Jesus' redeeming work on the cross is going to mean something new. It's going to mean something better for all of us. And so what is it? What's the temple today? Well, Paul says this, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. What does the Apostle Paul say? 
He says, because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross and his resurrected life, if you're in Jesus, if you've trusted Christ with your life, the temple is in you. You are God's temple. You are his dwelling place, which is really, really cool when you think about it and incredibly terrifying, right? All at the very same time that as a follower of Jesus, as one who has been saved by Jesus Christ, my life and, and your life, if you've trusted the Lord, serves as a sanctuary for the presence of God on earth here today. And if we believe that to be true, all right, if you believe that to be true today, then based on this teaching that we're reading, it's fair to ask this, that if Jesus showed up in my life today, what would he throw out? Or let me ask it like this, what does Jesus need to clear from my temple? What does he need to clear out from my temple? Or in a very personal way, what does he want to clean out of yours What's the sin that I've allowed to continue and grow in my life? In what ways might I be taking advantage of others? Does the way I live reflect a, and demonstrate a high view of God or a very low view of God? What sin have I grown comfortable with? How about you? What is it for you? Is it an affair and no one knows? Maybe there are some struggles in your own life right now with sexual sin, lust, or pornography, and you're going to incredible lengths to hide it. Maybe an addiction of some kind to a drug, to food, any, anything that we can't live without can become a an addiction, a replacement of sorts, uh, something other than God. Maybe it's your attitude about yourself that you beat yourself up all of the time. You say things like, no one likes me, no, I'm not good enough. And so you play the martyr, and whether you realize it or not, you, you play the martyr as a way of, of using it to your advantage. Maybe you're angry all of the time. And the last couple of years have really put you on the edge to the point that you don't trust anyone anymore. You question everything. Uh, maybe it's the kind of sin that we're all, I'm guilty of justifying all the time. Things like greed and gossip and bitterness or cynicism. Maybe you've been holding on to a grudge for years and you have no intention of ever forgiving. Maybe you have some hate or racial feelings that influence many of your reactions. Maybe you're highly critical, emotional, and as a result, you're just downright negative all of the time. Sin impacts me. It impacts every single one of us. And this tolerance for sin, it's, it's something that starts on the inside. If we're not careful, we get used to it. We get comfortable with it. We see the sin in others, but we don't see it in ourselves. And we convince ourselves, well, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. I mean, some of us have dealt with patterns for sin so long, we keep them around like a pet, you know, when instead we should treat them like a pest. Listen, if you would, these verses aren't on the screen, but let me just read for you a few verses about sin and its influence in our lives. 
Romans chapter 6, verses 12, 13, and 14, the apostle Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. Uh, Paul goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, the uh, preceding verse to the verses we've been looking at in 19 and 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins uh, a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Why? Like, why? Why does victory over sin matter so much to God and so much to Jesus? And why do we read about it in the Word of God? Well, let's go back again one more time to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. It's because Paul says, do you not know that your bodies, if you're in Christ Jesus, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, otherwise translated the very presence of God who is in you, who you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Note those words. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus gave his life for you. He, he laid down his life as the final perfect sacrifice for sin and bore the punishment like my sin and my shame and my greed and my guilt. He bore all of it on the cross. And so when you put your faith and your trust in him, he gives you, the promise of God is that he gives you his new life, his righteousness, a, a new calling. And he puts his very presence in you to lead you and guide you. And if he was willing to give his life for us, why in the world would we not want to give our lives for him. Friends, it's time to pick up the whip and to drive out the sin that we've allowed to remain in our lives. In fact, I'll bet there is one thing in your life and in my life that if you could just conquer it, just overcome it with the help of Jesus, you'd probably experience more peace in your life, a peace like you've never experienced before. You'd, you'd be a better husband, right? You'd, you'd be a better wife. You'd be a better friend and closer to God and grow with God. I mean, haven't most of us at one time or another thought, you know, I'd love to be closer to God. I want to grow closer to God. Can I just say this? If you want to grow, it's got to go. Like, I mean, if you and I, if we want to grow, it's got to go. As I was just reflecting on what this means for me this past week, thinking about my life, I, I see how quickly I allow things like anxiety uh, to move me to think about controlling everything. I got I to gotta control this. I, I got to control that. And, and really that restlessness and that lack of ability to control, it just, it just leads to a really poor attitude. And that's a sin that I don't want to tolerate in my life. And I want to trust the Lord and I want to invite him even into those places of my life so that I can look more and more like Christ, that he can do his work in me. How do we do that? Well, in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to pray with you. 
And uh, we're going to pray a dangerous prayer together. We're going to invite Jesus into the deepest recesses of our lives and invite him to drive things out. But before we do that, I want to address something that's equally important to identifying, conquering, and overcoming sin in our lives. And that is that when we just try to get rid of sin, to remove sin from our lives, well, if we don't replace those habits, that sin, those patterns with something else, something better, that, that, that one sin or something like it is going to creep in and fill that void. And that's just a reminder that if we really want to find victory over sin in our lives, we can't just work hard to remove it. We must replace it with something else, with someone else. And that is the very presence of Jesus and his abiding, all-powerful work in us. He's the only one who can help. He is our Savior. He is our friend. Let's look at these words one more time. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You were bought at a price. He loves you. He's not angry with you. He loves you, and in his grace, he gave his life for you. And as Christians, he has put his presence in us so that he can help us overcome sin, so that we can grow in our faith, and so that we can grow in our relationship with the Lord. Let's pray together. And again, as we pray, I, I just want to say to you today that no matter what it is, that Jesus is not angry with you. His righteous anger is not directed towards you but it's towards our sin. It's my sin. And it's this broken world that we live in. And the evil that's before us and the temptations that seek to lure us in. And, and Jesus just says to us, there's another way. I have done the work. I've given my life so that you don't have to. Trust me. Put your faith in me. Keep trusting me so that you can keep growing in me. What does Jesus want to drive out of your life? What does he want to drive out of my life today so that we can serve him, so that we can live for him, so that we can become everything he wants us to be for his glory here on this earth? Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do or start or continue a work in each of us today, that the sin that we've tolerated, that the sin we've maybe tried to cover up, that we won't put up with it any longer, and that by your Holy Spirit and by your grace and by your love, that you will drive that sin out. Begin a work in us today, God. Start a work in us today. we belong to you. You paid the price. You gave your life in love. And because we are deeply loved by you, we want to do everything that we can to live faithfully for you. Have your way in us. Have your way in this place today, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.